Hello, and welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a podcast each week about the latest new episode of Star Trek. This week, we're looking at the season premiere of Star Trek Discovery, That Hope Is You. Your hosts are two of the Academy faculty members. I'm Dr. Rodney Cup, the philosophy guy in this podcast. And I'm Dr. Michael Merrick. I'm the media guy. Our website is thestartrekacademy.blogspot.com. And you can find links there to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're also available on several podcast sites, and you can find those linked at this website also. So now, as always, we begin with a description of the episode. We try to be brief, but there's a lot in this episode. If you have not seen the episode yet, there definitely are spoilers ahead. Rodney? All right. So this episode begins with a man named Book piloting a ship in space amid the wreckage of a Starfleet vessel. He's being chased and fired upon by someone named Cosmo, who's accusing him of having his stolen cargo. Suddenly a space-time anomaly appears and Michael Burnham emerges from it in the time travel suit and somehow in the vastness of space collides with Book's ship. She and Book crash on a nearby planet and both miraculously survive impact. The suit's computer tells her that she has arrived at the year 3188 and the planet and presumably the galaxy are inhabited. She sends the suit back through the wormhole in order to send a signal to Enterprise and sets off in the direction of the smoke rising from Book's ship. She encounters Book there and they fight to a stalemate. He tells her that she's on the planet Heme, not Terralisium. She apologizes for crashing into his ship tells him she needs someone to trust and asks him for help. They board his ship where he tells her that his dilithium recrystallizer was damaged in the collision with her suit and he has only so long to deliver his cargo to another planet. His only option is to trade something for dilithium at the Mercantile, a kind of marketplace in the nearby city of Requiem. Burnham realizes that her tricorder, phaser, and other items in her emergency kit are antiques in this era, which might have value, and she might also be able to trade something for the use of subspace comms. So Book cloaks his ship and they set off for the mercantile. On the way, Book tells her that the Federation is gone. Burnham is shocked. He tells her that most of the dilithium in the galaxy just went boom 100 to 120 years ago, and no one knows why. A lot of people died, and the Federation apparently collapsed. At the Mercantile, Burnham is surprised to see Andorians and Orions working together. Burnham walks into a vault after Book tells her it's the comms array, and she gets trapped in a stasis beam and arrested. Book takes all of her antiques and abandons her there. Burnham is dosed by guards with some kind of truth serum, and she tells them everything she knows while sounding a lot like Beckett Mariner. Meanwhile, Cosmo finds Book trying to trade Burnham's antiques for dilithium, and he takes him into custody and roughs him up, demanding to know where his cargo is. The guards find them, and Burnham identifies Book, and she takes her things back. The guard tells Cosmo that he can shoot Book, but only after, after they find the cargo. When Cosmo asks if he can shoot Burnham, she and Book attack the guards, grab their weapons, and they start shooting. Burnham finds dilithium in a shop. They steal it, and Book transports them out of the mercantile. The guards can track them, though, and they follow. 
Book loses them by transporting into a lake. He tries to open a subspace channel so that Burnham can call Discovery, but there's no answer. At that point, Book guesses that Burnham is a time traveler, and Burnham confirms that. Book tells her that all time travel technology was destroyed and outlawed, af outlawed excuse me, after the temporal wars. Once they arrive at Book's ship, mercantile guards appear and surround them. Cosmo is killed for letting Book steal his cargo. Book gives them the access code to his ship, which is sticky. The ship appears, the cargo holds open, and they find a transworm inside, which needs to be kept alive because it's served fresh, the Orion says. It leaps out of the hold and trances the guards and eats several of them. The remaining guards beam away, and the worm, who Book has named Molly, takes Burnham into its mouth. Book somehow communicates with it, though, and it spits Burnham out, much like a spider creature in the Galar system spat Brad Boimler out of its mouth 808 years earlier. We learned that Book's goal was to save the transworm and take it to a sanctuary planet. Since the Federation isn't around anymore, it is up to people like Book to enforce the Endangered Species Act. Book has an unusual connection to living things, unlike his family members, who he says are killers and poachers. Consequently, he is estranged from them. Book then takes Burnham to a courier waypoint that used to be a Federation relay station. They meet Federation liaison Adida Sile there. He looks for Discovery's warp signature, but finds only two other Federation ships in a 600 light year radius. He can't scan any further than that though, because long range sensors failed decades ago for some reason. But that means that there may be many surviving Federation bases that are cut off from each other. Sile tells Burnham that he is not a commissioned officer, but he has staffed the station for 40 years, waiting for someone from the Federation to appear and swear him in. He asks Burnham to raise the Federation flag that has been in his family for generations, and she offers him a commission as acting communications chief, which he accepts. Meanwhile, Burnham is left to wonder where Discovery is or when it will arrive. So that wasn't exactly short and sweet, I guess. But there but it is. There's a lot there. There's a lot there in this episode. And it's introducing a whole new storyline. First, we want to, as usual, take it, take a look at some of the individual elements. And then a little bit later, we'll talk about the messages and, and meaning and, and, and takeaway and the themes of this episode. I want to start uh, in, from a, the technical perspective. This was very cinematic shooting for this episode. It's a wider screen than previous seasons of Discovery. I think it's the same as they used for Picard, uh, which is quite wide uh, in terms of today's television. Regular HDTV today is the width is 1.8 times the height, if you can imagine that. So a little bit, a little bit less than, than twice the width of the height. Old style analog TV was one and a half times as wide as it was tall. Cinescope is 2.35 times as wide as it is tall. And I actually tried to measure on my screen with, uh, with a tape measure. And uh, what I got for discovery is somewhere around two and a half times as wide as it is tall, but that's really wide as, as TV episodes go today. So it is a very cinematic approach to, to shooting. Lots of very nice cinematography here. One thing I particularly noticed, and this is sort of jumping to the end, 
But when Burnham and Book get to the Federation outpost, it has a very cool bluish light. And in terms of the meanings of color, uh, warm colors, which is, you know, the redder, the more reddish, orange, yellow, those signal emotions. And blue light is considered to represent technology and logic. And I think you would usually think of the, that hope is you, hope as being something we would show with warm colors, but maybe the cool colors here represent the, the advanced ethics and, and logic and, and ideas of, of the Federation. Right, and, and speaking about the uh, cinematography, if you watch the end credits, I always watch the end credits, they mention an Iceland unit. Mm -hmm. And so I think surely the scenes on Heem were filmed in Iceland and they're gorgeous. Um, I think they succeeded in creating a world that is obviously class M, but it looks otherworldly. And I think some folks are gonna wanna visit Iceland after seeing this, it's truly <laughs> beautiful. Yeah, now when, um, when uh, Burnham shows up, uh, the computer tells her it's 3188 and there are multiple life readings, not necessarily sentient, but that does confirm to her that control was defeated. And thus that explains her celebration at that news that yeah. she and Discovery were successful. Yeah, she only asked for life signs. She didn't ask for life signs of intelligent species, but maybe she already knew the, the suit was programmed to, to look at it that way. At, at first I was kind of bemused that she sent the suit away right away where it seems that it might've been valuable to have because it can do a bunch of cool stuff. But, um, you know, we right. knew at the end of last season that she had promised to send a signal back to Spock so he would know everything was okay. And at least maybe this is how the writers accomplish, accomplish that. They send the whole suit back to transmit the signal and then self-destruct. So it isn't available to other people. It's kind of a plot device because it would, would give her a lot of oomph um, if she if she still had the functioning suit, but it wasn't really signaling that everything was okay to Spock. And remember, Spock waited months before the signal came in. It wasn't really everything's okay. It's just basically that she'd arrived. She had for the moment. Right. For the moment was safe. Yeah. Maybe best that she sent it away if uh, time technology has been outlawed, and we'll that get to be, that later. Yeah. Right. So fortunate for her. Um, we learn about the burn here. Uh, 100 to 120 years earlier, uh, when most of the dilithium in the galaxy, we think, blew up unexpectedly for some reason, we don't know why, greatly limiting warp travel, obviously. Some dilithium remains, as we've seen, but after a while, uh, we suppose there simply wasn't enough of it around for the Federation to uh, exist anymore, at least in its former state. Yeah, the, the, the reason that the Federation more or less collapsed or became disconnected is not completely clear. There are a question of ships. There's a question of, you know, if you don't have ships, but you still have subspace communication, could you hang together? I think that is going to be revealed in more detail um, coming up. I would say, though, that you're right about time travel being being outlawed and time travel equipment being destroyed. But in, in Star Trek Enterprise, I think that we saw some evidence of time travel actually in Voyager too, within not too many decades before these events of discovery. Uh, so and, I mean, mm -hmm. the temporal war, temporal cold war was part of uh, discovery. We had some 
folks from the future, Captain Braxton uh, in, right, in Voyager. Right. And, and the way I read the timeline, those are not that many decades before uh, where Michael Burnham has, has found herself. Right. Right. And I suppose they're outlaws. We see at the listening station or the uh, waypoint uh, station that there uh, are only two ships within a 600 light year radius, which seems like not many at all. But a as we noted, or uh, as I noted, um, that leaves open the possibility that there are perhaps more, many more, perhaps they're just simply not able to uh, detect them or contact them from where they are. Yeah, particularly centuries in the future from where we're familiar with the Federation, you know, 600 light years may not be that very large percentage of, of the territory that they, they once covered. So, um, right. and I imagine there are going to be episodes about that in the future going farther out than 600 light years and seeing what, what is there and, and, and what survives. One thing I, I had a lot of trouble figuring out book ship crashes on the planet on heem right and it's kind of stuck in the sand on the beach at an angle but when they walk inside the control room is not at an angle the control room is perfectly flat i don't know what to make of that maybe it's artificial gravity and they're really at an angle but it looks like they're they're um they're straight up i also couldn't quite figure out later when we see the the, the cargo pods that molly was in that wasn't at an angle. That was flat. No, it wasn't. So, uh, the geography of Bookship, I haven't figured out yet. News articles, I don't think it was in the, epi in the episode, but news articles cite its name as Nautilus, as the Nautilus. Now, that's um, an interesting choice. I, I wonder if there's any suggestion there of uh, 20,000 leagues under the seas. I'm sure um, that's the reference. I'm sure that's yeah. the reference. And we'll have to think about that. Ca Captain Nemo uh, right. was an expert at aquaculture, at raising things under the sea. And then a little bit, that's what Book is doing with, with Molly. That is true. Right. Well, there you go. Yeah. So okay. it could be, could be. Yeah. I, there are a few things that bothered me about this, not just his ship, but you know, if it, if it actually crashed, I mean, it mustn't have crashed because by the end of the episode, he's there, there, they've, leave the planet and they're warping away or whatever it is that they're doing. It, it um, didn't crash so bad that it was really broken other than yeah. it, didn't, it needed dilithium crystals to get going again. Right. Now um, we see Orions and Andorians in this episode. And among the people pursuing a Burnham and book on Heme are a Lurian like the, the, Morin the, like, from DS9. Right. Know. Like Morin. Yeah. And uh, also a Tellarite, I think I saw there. And according to Memory Alpha, uh, Cosmo is a Beetlejuicy, and so um, people are still getting around somehow. Yeah, and you know, and we need to learn more about that. You know, there is some dilithium, but the dilithium might blow up again. It's not trustworthy. There's this other slipstream drive that uses a, a substance that is almost hard to find. We, we need to learn more uh, about that. Uh, I thought it was interesting. Burnham decides to use those items in her survival kit um, as antiques that have value. That's exactly what Captain Kirk did with his glasses in the Voyage Home in in the Whales movie. Exactly the same thing. They were they were antique when he got them. They predated whenever it was 1986 or whenever it was that the movie that the movie was set. And so she's essentially doing the same thing there. 
I also want to talk a little bit about this whole, uh, it's, it's a very, it's a very nice part of the storyline about Burnham and, and Sahil's uh, commission, uh, commissioning him as a communications officer. But in the military, a commission is, is a specific act that empowers the officer to act as a representative of the military in responsibility to the executive. In the United States, commissioned officers are ultimately responsible to the president. And, and all military command positions uh, filled by officers, therefore, essentially exercise the power, the power and the accountability of the commander in chief or the executive in terms of the military security of, of the government. But this is not a discretionary patronage appointment. There are not just national standards, but international standards for what is required to be an officer. And I gotta say, I do not think that Michael has the authority to formally commission an officer. I think she was likely using the term in a little bit more general sense of Sahil agreeing to commit to do a task, a commission as you would um, commission a piece of music or commission a piece of art. I also think that the rule about only a commissioned officer can raise the Federation flag, I have a feeling that Sahil's personal rule. I mean, can you imagine that rule today? You have to have a commissioned officer go to the post office every morning to raise the US flag. You have to have a commissioned officer to put the flag decal on the bumper of your pickup truck. I, I, I suspect that was that was his rule, but again, it was it was nicely meaningful in in the story. And as long as we're talking about him, to me, it seemed like he accepted Burnham pretty easily. Although when I thought about it, you know, I guess time travel is a well-known thing in this era because of the temporal wars, which were apparently moderately recently. So maybe it was fairly easy to accept that she was a time traveler, but he didn't like ask many follow-up questions or anything no, like he that. Didn't. He, he went for it hook, line and sinker. <laughs> I, I think they were really maybe trying to focus on the emotional impact of this scene and trying to avoid robbing it of that, Yeah, I suppose. But you'd think that that he would have been a little bit more suspicious, I suppose. While we're on the topic of um, Sayo, uh, in his office, we see the wreckage of a Federation starship floating in space outside the window. It's very prominent, certainly there for a reason. I'm thinking uh, perhaps it's serving as a reminder to the viewer of the catastrophic effect of the burn and perhaps also symbolic of the challenge ahead of Burnham. Uh, and they're the long odds they face in trying to resurrect the Federation. I was also wondering if, I mean, here and there, you know, we saw we saw wreckage, and we're not we're not sure if if Sahil's outpost is is over Heem, it's, if it's the same place or not. Yeah, but, it's not clear to me either. But, but the wreckage here and there could, I mean, that's something that once dis Discovery is working again, we're going to find out more about that next week, I think. But they there's, there's stuff they could probably salvage, you know, so have a rationale for upgrading Discovery with different things. So there, there's, there's stuff out there that they could they could salvage. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's what they're, they're thinking, but it would, it would make sense to me when you come across some of this wreckage to check out what's there and see if there's anything that we can use because the regular resupply parts you can't you can't call amazon to replace discoveries right. <laughs> discoveries widget that's that's not that's not working 
you know, the, the big character development in this episode is of, of Book, uh, Cleveland Booker. He is a courier who's working. Essentially, I think we see he's working for the Orion Andorian Syndicate. But on the side, he's saving an endangered species. And, and you mentioned it's not exactly clear yet. He has some kind of ability to interact. I, in my notes, I said he's a whisperer. Like yeah, that's a, a good word. A book years ago about the horse whisperer. He yep. He has a way of connecting with animals and plants and it, plants. It, it seems, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how how that develops. And it'll be interesting to see again if he's in with this. Let's rebuild the Federation hook, line, and sinker, or if he's going to start saying, "Well, you know, I got to get back to my syndicate job. They're going to want me to be a courier again." Interesting to see how that how that plays out. You know the the previews strongly suggests that he's going to be d- become deeply involved with Burnham and, and uh, her crew. So I, I don't know how that's going to be resolved. Well, yeah. And all um, the indications are that he's a regular, he's a regular character. He's not yes. part of the ensemble cast. So, but yeah, we'll see, we'll see how the storyline addresses that. It'll be interesting. Uh, before we move on, uh, I just wanted to note the special effects. If you're probably not worried about them, but they were definitely up to the standard that we've come to expect from Discovery. Uh, they looked great. And to me, the transworms looked real and they were completely convincing. I thought they did a fantastic job. This episode looks just as good as previous Discovery, if not better. Yeah, anyone who's listening that hasn't actually seen the episode yet, the transworms, they're not little bitty worms that you can no. hold in your hand. They're 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 dragon size worms that take a huge amount of cargo space to to carry temperature controlled cargo space and all that. Well, Rodney, let's kind of move on here. We've talked about a lot of the individual elements, but but let's move on and talk about the messages and and morals and meanings and what is the takeaway that the the producers want the audience to take away from from this episode. So let's uh, let's talk about this for a bit here. Right. So to begin with, we could start with the title of the episode. This is part one of That Hope Is You. And that's taken from something Sile tells Burnham in his office. He's been waiting for 40 years for a commissioned officer to arrive and swear him in, believing that someday it would happen. And it does. Burnham's appearance shows that his hope was not in vain. Surely Burnham is going to represent hope in in season three on multiple levels here. And I think hope really is the overarching theme of this episode. I mean, at the end of last season, Michael traveling into the future, she did that in hopes of ensuring the future, hope in ensuring that sentient life would, would continue in the future. Uh, book protecting an endangered species, that in and of itself, I think is an act of hope. When Michael says all she can do right now is trust someone she kind of pins her hopes on book, you could say. She says the Federation is about an idea, not just ships and warp drive. It's it's not just about the hardware and the technology. It's it's what they do with it. And I think that that statement, she didn't use the word hope in that sentence, but I think that is also about, about hope. There were references here in the episode about true believers. Yeah. And I think that is part of the theme. And and near the end, there's the exchange between Sile and, and Michael. Uh, hope is a powerful thing. Sometimes it's the only thing. Our numbers are few, but our spirit is undiminished. 
if there are others out there, we'll find them. And, and that essentially is, is the end of the episode. And, and so I think, yeah, the, the, the whole message here is, is hope looking ahead and, and what they, what they hope to accomplish, what they, what they feel needs to be accomplished. And I think that if, if we wanted to uh, maybe think about that and think about what relevance it might have to our world, I think there's a lot of instability in our world right now. And uh, people are worried that cherished norms and institutions may not last. Maybe this season is designed to address that fear and provide hope and comfort. I'm speculating here. Uh, Burnham says, as you note, the Federation isn't just about ships and warp drive. It's about a vision and all those who believe in that vision. To Sile, uh, Burnham represents that vision and the Federation's past. And therefore, she also represents the hope that that vision in the Federation itself is not dead and will flourish again. And I've got to think that uh, some people nowadays have similar thoughts about their own uh, ideals, institutions, norms, and the like. You know, I've been thinking about the burn and what are essentially the consequences of the loss of dilithium, or at least making it a premium commodity. And I wonder if that is also a metaphor maybe for our, our changing energy economy today. You know, science says we need renewable energy in order to prevent climate change that, that could be catastrophic. And now in the 32nd century, dilithium is a very limited resource and its loss was catastrophic. I, exactly what dilithium does has never been specified. It's not mm -hmm. directly the source of energy, but at least one way or another, it regulates the source of energy and, and is, is vital to warp drive. So, so I, I, I wonder if, if we're looking there at a metaphor for, uh, for our times also in terms of this, this loss of a central part of the power system. You know, now that you mention it, I think we ought to keep an eye out for that. I, I would be surprised actually if that was not, if that connection to our present was not intended, I'd be surprised. But anyway, I guess we can move on at this time to our uh, conclusions and final thoughts, Michael. I do, I do have a couple here. You know, a lot of adventure shows, science fiction adventure shows have some kind of home base, even if, even if we're not there every week. I mean, Indiana Jones had his college mm -hmm. and... It, it's not unusual. There's some kind of home base, and and maybe with Sahil's uh, a damaged uh, relay station, maybe that is going to be Michael and and Discovery's uh, at least a possible base of operations. There are wrecks in the area, like I said earlier. They could salvage. I don't mm -hmm. know what opportunity there is for R and R there, but at least they could get <laughs> off the ship for a while. Right. And and so I'm wondering. Uh, you know, or or is Discovery going to go away? Sahil stay there. They only talk by subspace, or is he going to go with them and leave the relay station behind? We'll see. I was wondering about that. We'll see what happens there. And I'm also wondering just why did the Federation collapse or fragment? We know that all the dilithium went bluey, and the Federation didn't know why. 
and, and as a result, there are few or no ships to go back and forth among the member worlds uh, using warp drive, at least. And they mentioned slipstream, which goes back to, to Voyager, at least. Uh, slipstream seems to be a viable alternative to warp drive. And book ship can do both, but the, the Venomite that's needed for slipstream is also like super rare. And, and they didn't mention transwarp, but what about transwarp as a way of getting from place to place? So just, just the fact that ships couldn't go, go back and forth, is that enough? When we learned that long-range scanning failed, uh, and again, why was that? In previous Star Trek, there have been booster stations for subspace mm -hmm. radio communications. I wonder if that um, also uh, is a channel for other kinds of scanning. Are some of these booster stations still out there repairable if Discovery could find them? Uh, mm -hmm. If you have subspace voice communication, even if you don't have ships going back and forth, is that enough to break to break the Federation or subspace communication? Could that keep 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 the idea of the Federation alive? I just I, I don't know. Yeah. Now, I think Discovery may have some technology that, you know, the Federation in 3188 doesn't have, and that's the spore drive. Mm -hmm. And I have a feeling that it's going to get a workout this season. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they use it to try to find other pockets of the Federation elsewhere. Yeah, I think so. I think that's the big advantage that this almost almost millennium old starship has, yeah. that it can get places that that the 23rd century ships can't because of the limitations of what can be done with warp drive and slipstream and, and all that kind of thing. The other, right. the other question I have is those two other Federation ships that were in scanning range, uh, you know, what's the deal with them? Are they what we would think of as standard Starfleet ships or what's, what's the deal with them? Uh, once discovery gets ship shape again and, and I think there are going to be problems with that that we find out about this coming week. But these these mm. other ships that we're that we can scan out there would be my starting place if it was me. You know, go find them and see what's what. I I agree. And, it's it's very mysterious. Um, I was able to figure out how to freeze the frame um, when it fills up my screen, and I believe that his sensors showed that uh, that the ships were unidentified. I think is what they said. It's very mysterious. I did, a, I did, yeah, I did see his display of the whole galaxy, and there were a couple of uh, regular old-style um, Starfleet uh, arrowheads or, or or triangles, whatever you want to call right. them, uh, fairly widely spaced, probably spaced more than six hundred light years, but but we'll see. I mean, we'll I understand see. that they didn't want to fill up this first episode of the season with lots of exposition that there are questions that will be resolved right. as as we go along and i think part of what's going to make this season interesting is filling in those gaps solving those mysteries and in fact that's i think that's one of uh, burnham's goals i think at one point her she wants to find out why the burn happened so that's that's another one of her missions as well as i suppose uh putting the federation back together again i have um, to say i hope that it's not some big overarching AI or alien species that waved a magic wand and all the dilithium went, went kapow. I hope that, that it's not this single overarching bad guy that yeah. we've had really I in agree. a way kind of the past two seasons. I agree. So and I, that, that had a occurred, that thought had occurred to me that maybe the, the Kelvins were back 
and this time they are going to take over the Milky Way galaxy. But, but you're, you're, um, you're not talking of the Kelvin timeline. You're talking about the Kelvins in the original series that came that's from the right. Andromeda galaxy. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But I, you know, now that we've talked, for example, your your idea of somehow some kind of uh, symbolism here of our own uh, energy problems, that idea wouldn't work if it's some sort of you know, alien intelligence that zapped all the dilithium in the galaxy. So okay. I, I, I hope that does not happen. So we'll see about that. We will that, see. Yeah. My final thought is, and you know, you read the, the, the articles, the popular articles about this season and ev everybody is kind of saying, well, by going all far into the future, the discovery writers are no longer bound by Star Trek continuity. Well, I think that that idea is disproven by this episode. Very yeah, and it, recognizable continuity is just all over the place in this and, episode. And, and can you imagine what it would have been like if there hadn't been any continuity? I mean, then you would have had people saying, this isn't Star Trek. So it's, that's kind of a, a, a non-starter to begin with, the idea that they, they won't have to be bothered by continuity anymore. It is true that they're in, if you will, a new place in the timeline, that they're farther in the future that, that, that we've been. So it's pretty easy for them to invent events that have never happened before, you know, create right. a new context. But, but what I think of is the continuity of Star Trek is way more than just a series of events. This happened, this happened. It's how things work. It is what we know about different species. It is, mm -hmm. yes. there are things about technology that although it's science fiction and it's in the future, we have a pretty good idea of, of how, for example, the transporter works. And right. I, think, I think that they're still conforming to those. Yeah, transporters don't need a whole big room anymore. You, can do, you have personal transporters uh, that recharge in 30 seconds, which is right. fine, but it's still essentially the same technology developed further down the road in the timeline. Right. Well, I guess that about does it for this week. So we'd like to thank you for joining us. This is the Star Trek Academy podcast. We respond to every new Star Trek episode of every series. You can find our new episodes at thestartrekacademy.blogspot.com. That site also has links to several platforms for your podcast apps also. All right. So we'd like you to join us again next week for the Star Trek Academy podcast. And at that point, we're going to look at episode two of this season of Discovery, reportedly entitled Far From Home. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it's I mean, some of the listings said this week was that hope is you part one. The the listing of episode titles I've seen do not say part two. So we're going to have to see. I'm confused. Okay. But well, whatever we'll find the, out. Whatever the title is and whatever they're doing, we'll be here next week. And we hope everyone else will be with us too. Yeah. Thank you for listening.